0: From First Chronicles, chapter 29, verses 11 through 13. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand... It is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, O Lord, and praise your glorious name. And from the Psalms, the 8th Psalm, the first four verses. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name on all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the Son of man that you care for him? And finally, from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man? who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let us be seated. Well, good morning again. I'm glad that... uh, Everybody has been able to enjoy this first Sunday in Advent together. It's a beautiful thing to gather to worship. And as we think about the message of Advent, it's a wonderful thing to reflect upon. So, if you have been here in the previous weeks, you will know that we have just concluded a series on the Lord's Prayer, which was called As It Is Living in the Vision of Jesus. And this is the beginning of a brand new series called It Will Be, but I have a confession to make. It's actually a sequel to our previous series. And how is it a sequel? There are two ways. First of all, our message for Advent is going to be focused on that doxology and amen that we recite at the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. And second, it is a sequel in that it seeks to provide the answer to the question that was begged in our series on the Lord's Prayer. For we were told again and again in the Lord's Prayer that it will be on earth as it is in heaven. But a question is is begged by that prayer. How will it be on earth as it is in heaven? How can what we know is true in heaven and what we know is true about earth ever be reconciled? How can that gap, that gulf between the two, ever be bridged? It is a serious question, and our hopes of heaven rest on that answer. Why do we end our prayers with the word amen? It's a strange word. It comes actually straight from Hebrew. There are very few words that you speak that are bona fide Hebrew, But every time you say amen, you are Hebrew in your language. So you're bilingual. Congratulations. And what does the word mean? It means truly or surely. It is said at the end of prayers because it is a way for us to say, let it be so. Let it be true. May it happen. May it be certain. However, when we pray the prayers that we pray, we say amen But we say amen tinged with uncertainty. Our amens are hopeful as opposed to concrete. There is wishfulness in our amens. But when we say amen to the Lord's prayer, we are more than hoping, we are more than wishing. When we pray for it to be on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying with the Lord's, Amen And when we are praying with the Lord's amen, we know that what we pray for, it will be. We know it will be because of advent. Our hope of being part of the vision of Jesus is guaranteed because Jesus took on flesh and bridged the gap between heaven and. earth the story of advent is wondrous and shocking there is nothing quaint about it there is nothing familiar to it because it is the message that the one who is our creator and king comes to us as a dependent and fragile baby what kind of grace is this We can do nothing but exclaim how great is our God when we consider how low he has stooped to make us his own. This is illustrated clearly for us in the very first clause of our doxology. For thine is the kingdom. What we discover by the incarnation is that God's kingdom comes to us not by Jesus coming in majesty, but through Jesus coming In lowliness. Perhaps this morning you are down. Perhaps you are defeated. You are overwhelmed. Something has gone the wrong way. You've gotten a diagnosis that scares you, cripples you. Perhaps something in your life that you were hoping to materialize has suddenly just fallen apart and you are feeling crushed and low. Perhaps this morning you come to church with the awareness of failures morally that give you the anthem in your heart disqualified, unforgivable, wretched, Perhaps you are here and you are down. Advent has good news for you because God comes down. We are not accustomed to lowliness being the path of victory. Our society is built on ladders, something to climb. We are always working to take the next step up. We have the ladder at work to work our way up the org chart, to work our way up the pay scale. We have the economic ladder, trying to increase more and more our economic station. We have the social ladder, gaining friends on Facebook, moving into other circles, trying to elevate ourselves socially to be more like the people that we look up to. We have the self-esteem ladder. We are just dropping trophies on everything to move you up in your self-esteem. We have the, the self-actualization ladder. Go toward your dreams. Chase, rise above. Become this magnificent self that is inside of you. Break it out. Listen to Oprah. She'll give you all the tips. We see this at Christmas. We are all chasing the perfect family Christmas. We want to give better presents or more presents. We want a bigger family. We want to uh, indulge, to have more memories, to have those, those, those things that are magical about Christmas just all come together again and again and bigger and better. Hmm. We are all pursuing A ladder. And so today, perhaps you are up. But if you're up, you're probably tired. These ladders are fatiguing. These ladders are tiring and relentless. And they add, pound by pound, stress into our lives. Because the higher we rise, the the, the further we can fall, And the idea of that fall keeps us up at night. We know in our hearts what goes up must come down. And so we bear the burden of that anxiety. One of my favorite preachers, A.W. Tozer, spoke of society. He says, There is hardly a man or woman who dares to be just what he or she is without doctoring up the impression. The fear of being found out gnaws like rodents within our hearts. The man of culture is haunted by the fear that he will someday come upon a man more cultured than himself. The learned man fears to meet a man more learned than he. The rich man sweats under the fear that his clothes or his car or his house will sometime be made to look cheap by comparison. Books are sold, clothes and cosmetics are peddled by playing continually upon the desire to appear what we are not. We have given ourselves to an endless climbing of ladders. The good news of Advent is we have a Savior that can give rest to your souls, who comes to you no matter how low you are, we have a savior who comes down. The incarnation shows us that Jesus our king secured us into the kingdom, made it will be for us through three acts of lowliness. Let us now turn to these passages and see specifically how the incarnation shows us that Jesus our king secured us into the kingdom by three acts of lowliness we are going to see that King Jesus first brought us into the kingdom by bearing lowliness of mind. Our King Jesus brought us into the kingdom first by bearing lowliness of mind. Now before we get too far into this sermon, it bears the question for each of us, where did the doxology of the Lord's Prayer come from? Because if you're holding a modern translation, more than likely the Words for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever are not included at the end of the Lord's Prayer in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It very likely is in a footnote that says some manuscripts include these words, but the fact of the matter is that the manuscripts that have that doxology are late, are later than, than the ones that omit it. So most biblical scholars believe that this doxology is not original to the Lord's Prayer that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. However, we do have evidence that this doxology was in use in the very earliest evidence of the church. In the document called the Didache, which is second century, we see the Lord's Prayer printed with this doxology. So from the very earliest of our records, we know that when the church prayed the Lord's Prayer, they prayed these words with it, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This leads to a couple possibilities. One, it was something that Jesus said, but was one of the sayings that the apostles, for one reason or another, did not record in the, in the scriptures. That's very possible. The prayer does seem to need a conclusion. Or it rests on the very earliest tradition that this was a fitting way to finish the Lord's Prayer. At any rate, the reason that we have this passage from Chronicles is to show you that this doxology, this, this conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, rests very firmly on scriptural ground. When David concluded his prayer, he said words that are very similar to this, if not a few more words. But the basic fact of the matter is that there is absolutely everything to say about thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, thine is the glory forever, amen. That it is firmly biblical. And so we are going to use the doxology as a place to look at each of these uh, messages, each of these praises in the story of Advent. And the first, as we look at thine is the kingdom, is to see that Jesus brings us the kingdom as the king by bearing, first of all, lowliness of mind. Lowliness of mind. Our Savior comes to us out of a place of extreme greatness. When we look at Psalm 8, we look at these words and we are caught up in his magnificence, in his greatness, his transcendence. We are told several things that that show us how great God is. We are seeing his his majesty. We are told that his glory is above the heavens. Above the heavens, meaning there is nothing above God's glory. Because in in the mental architecture of the Hebrew mind, the heavens were the highest there were. And here we are told in Psalm 8, above the heavens, in that unsearchable, unreachable upper story, is only God's glory. God's glory is above the heavens. And what are the heavens? We know the heavens well from our study on the Lord's Prayer. The heavens are where God's name is perfectly and endlessly hallowed. That's where the seraphim are there saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We know that that is where God's kingdom is firmly established, where his his will is completely and perfectly brought to pass. We know that, that where God dwells, his name, his kingdom, and his will are glorified in perfection. What an amazing place it is that God dwells. It is full of perfection and full of beauty. Second, this psalm shows us the great gulf that exists between heaven and earth. And it does this through a very interesting literary device by going through terms that are subsequently lower until we reach earth. In verse 3 we are told, or in verse, I'm sorry, in verse 1, we are told God's glory is above the heavens. In, in verse 3, we are talking about the moon and the stars, the night sky, the highest heavens that we can see. And then verse 5, the psalmist says that we go below the heavenly beings. Finally, in verse 6, we read the word feet, that which touches the earth. But it takes the psalmist six verses of, of, of description and praise to move us from the highest heavens all the way down to our feet, to earth. And the reason that he wants us to see that is to see how high and how transcendent our Heavenly Father is compared to where we exist He underscores our insignificance in comparison. As he wonders at the night sky, the psalmist looks up at the night and he sees all those stars. Have you had that experience? Have you taken a moment just to look up at the stars on a clear sky and see that they are uncountable, that they are speckled, that they have great majesty and glory and what are we told about these magnificent heavens that science has, has only made larger for us by telling us that they are billions of light years away? That this universe that we are seeing is incomprehensibly vast? What are we told by the psalmist? He is saying that these heavens are the work of his fingers. These heavens are are the work of his fingers. So what we look up to with wonder and glory, we are told that they were daintily created by the digits, by the fingers of God. Craigie, the uh, theologian and commentator, makes this fascinating. He says, in contrast to God, the heavens are tiny, pushed and prodded into shape by the divine digits. But in contrast to the heavens, which seem so vast in the human perception, it is mankind that is tiny. So the heavens, which dwarf us, are tiny to God. So how small, how insignificant must we be in front of God? That seems to be the conclusion that the psalmist wants us to contemplate. When I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? This psalm is the Bible's Copernican revolution. Back in the 1500s, the scientists were just blown away to discover that the earth is not the center of the universe, that the sun and the solar system, that we revolve around that. And everybody was like, what a crisis. We are not the center of the earth. What ignorance. The Bible has already had a Copernican revolution. If you cannot be found more small than this picture, there is nothing to to do except to say you have already been small and insignificant next to God which everything revolves around this is the Copernican revolution we are made small and insignificant as we contemplate God next to ourselves so we see God's greatness and for some theologians that's as far as we can go God is so great he is out of our reach But the Bible tells us something fascinating. This God whose glory is above the heavens is the same God who draws near to us. What is man that you were mindful of him? Man is certainly insignificant compared to all of this glory and yet we are told that God is mindful of us. He has us on our mind. We occupy his thoughts I mean, imagine that if, if, if that were you. Who would leave this place where you're receiving all the glory and the fame? There was a movie that came out a couple years ago called Minority Report, and it had this just throw throwaway scene that you could have your fantasy brought to life through virtual reality. and And they show that this one person's fantasy, this middle management fella, he was in the middle of this virtual fantasy where everybody is clapping saying you're awesome you're the best no one's better than you you're great you're cool you're the top dog and he's just basking in it loving it all he's doing is is directing to himself and yet we have god who rightly possesses all glory who rightly deserves all praise who very well could just exist living in that throne room, celebrating his joyful and proper glory. And what we find here, though, is that he is mindful of us. How amazing. He cares for us. He cares for us. He is not only mindful of us, but he cares for us. We see this throughout the scriptures. We see this in the story of Jacob, Jacob a schemer, Jacob, someone who's a rascal running from God. We find him visiting and caring for Jacob by wrestling him. Moses, a man disqualified by murder, a man living in the wilderness, banished from all culture and society, we find God visiting him in the burning bush and restoring him. Elijah, a great prophet who nonetheless is crushed by disappointment, When his prophecy, though brought in glorious reality, has no effect on his people. And he is dejected and disappointed and wants to kill himself. And yet, Elijah is met in the cave by the still small voice of God. Who visits his people as far and as low as they have fallen with his care and concern. Despite God's great majesty, he attends to us in our lowliness. To what extent? What extent does this happen? Let me tell you that he does far more than wear an LSU tie. He doesn't just come to you in LSU colors. The, the amazing thing about our God, who is glorious above the heavens, is that he comes to earth and takes on flesh. He becomes the God-man in Jesus. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul out of Philippians. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of Of men. God has come to visit us and live amongst us in Jesus. He is mindful of us and has visited us, not from on high, but from the side, by becoming part of this world in Jesus. Now, when we talk about the incarnation, we need to recognize that Jesus is fully God and fully man. But when God determined to come to earth, he added humanity. And when he added that humanity to his deity, he lived amongst us in the humility, the humbleness, the limitedness of that flesh. He was always God, but he lived amongst us as a man. That is what he has done to visit us, to become flesh, to bear with us infirmity. His lowliness of mind not only is mindful of his creatures, but lives with them. He is so mindful that a smoldering wick and a bruised reed he does not injure. Think of the story in John 4 where Jesus is in Samaria. The land of the enemies. And he is there and he is thirsty. He's thirsty. Thirsty. And he wants help. And so there's this woman who comes at the noon hour. A Samaritan woman. She comes to this well. It's very likely that the, the noon hour meant that this woman had waited so that she wouldn't have to see Anybody. Because it's very late to be collecting your water that time of day. Probably she came late because she had deep shame, deep sense of rejection in her soul. And we know from the story that she is a woman who has been bandied about by several men, married four times, and living with someone who was not her husband. She lived in a shameful state. So probably she is coming out to this well at the hour when no one would be there because she didn't want to be seen. She is a bruised reed. She is a smoldering wick. She is one breath of air from being snuffed out. She is one harsh word from being broken into, never to be repaired. And Jesus meets her and speaks to her as a dignified human being and offers her water that will never make her thirsty again. And how does she return from her encounter with Jesus? How does this bruised reed, this smoldering wick, go back into her town with joy and purpose because she has met the Messiah who knew her and yet did not snuff her out? Jesus comes bearing lowliness of mind But second, he comes also by descending in lowliness of position. He descends in lowliness of position. As we think about the glory of God, as we think about man and the relationship, there is an enigma that is created for us, the enigma of humanity. What is man? Where do we belong? In one manner, We have been made with a royal heart. We have inherent dignity because we have been made by God. You made him lower than the angels, only a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. We are told that we have inherent dignity, that we have an incredible role in creation, that we are to have dominion to rule over this earth. We have been given a crown of glory, We have been given the image of God. The idea is that God created us just a little lower than the heavenly beings so that we would cover the earth reflecting our creator, reflecting the glory of God. We are able to know and reflect God. Clearly, we as man, as as humanity, have been created with heaven in our hearts, with royalty in our hearts. I love watching my daughter play. It is the most natural thing for her to assume she is a princess. She fulfills her princess mandate with great gusto. And I wonder if perhaps that is a faint echo that she has in her childhood of what she really is supposed to be. She is supposed to be royal. But as we know we have a royal heart, we also know that we have feet of clay. God created us on the sixth day. We share the same day as that of the animals. We are made from the dust of the ground. We are man. We possess mortality. The psalm uses, instead of the word Adam for man, he uses the word uh, Enosh, which focuses on our frailty. So we have these two aspects. We have a royal heart, but we also have the fact that we are made of earth. And worse than that, we are fallen. In Genesis chapter 3, after being told not to eat of this one fruit, the knowledge of good and evil, what was the temptation that clinched for Adam and Eve? It was these lines. If you take and eat, you will be like God. The idea of grasping godness was what Adam and Eve did when they fell. They grasped for godness and fell, and they were cursed with these words, from dust you came, and to dust you will return. And so we see this world not living in the glory that it was created for, Man not fulfilling the mandate of ruling like it was supposed to. Certainly we see vestiges of it, but even the best businesses, even the best endeavors seem to be afflicted and corrupted with greed and frailty and fallenness. And so as the author of Hebrews says, we do not yet see everything in subjection. The Psalms description does not match the reality We are like the Griswolds. We have a great picture of our family Christmas with a beautiful tree that will never fit in our living room, with all kinds of family interactions that are going to be rosy and pleasant. And then the reality sets in the tree doesn't fit, and my in laws are in laws. And that's hard and painful. But we have in our heart this ideal, this reality. That is greater than what we see. So we see that there is a gap between the ideal and the real, a great gap, as we see our fallenness only get us deeper and deeper from the heavenly calling that we have. Indeed, I believe that this psalm, as we read it, sounds distant memories of how it was. But it also reveals our shortcomings, it also reveals how tarnished our glory is, how incomplete our crown above creation is, how far we have fallen. And so as we see the ideal and we measure ourselves against it, we can only say, there must be a judgment for how short I have fallen, for how incomplete is my dominion that was given to me in this creation. We should be looking for judgment expecting judgment but then that is not what we receive we come to the wonder of the incarnation look again at hebrews chapter 2 verse 7 you made him for a little while lower than the angels we were not sent a judgment we were sent a son the son of glory has taken on our dust. He, fully God and fully man, having two natures in one person, yet comes to us with a humanity. Humanity added to his deity. He chose to be lowly, whereas Adam reached. Our savior lowered himself to be a servant. Here again, Paul's commentary in Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Jesus, we see that the ideal The true image of God has invaded the real, the fallenness. He came to fulfill what our humanity was meant to be. He was the perfect image of God. You saw Jesus and you saw God. There was no shadow of turning. His his coming restored our royalty. Wherever he went, he brought the reign of God When he spoke to the Pharisees, he said, the kingdom of God is in your midst because it was him. Wherever he went, wherever he walked, he brought the law, the order of God, he brought the glory of God, he brought the kingdom of God without any fault. And so it is because he came, because he made himself lower, made himself lower, that in him, the psalm is fulfilled. And when is it fulfilled? Look again at Hebrews 2 5. It was not to angels that subjected the world to come. He is speaking of the world to come on earth as it is in heaven. It is because Jesus came and fulfilled our perfect humanity that the world to come can be on earth as it is in heaven. We see that he descends in the lowliness of position. By washing the disciples' feet, he comes the night that he is about to be arrested, the night that he is to be betrayed. And he does this from John chapter 13. Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, knowing who he really was, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured water into basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Does that image not jar you? The one whose glory is above the heavens, wrapped around him a towel, to be the servant of his disciples and clean their feet? He made himself a lowly servant. He takes on our dust, and he washes off our dust. I took a mission trip to Haiti several years ago, and one of the activities that was planned for us was to go to an elderly home, uh, an old folks home. Many, Many elderly people were there, and to lotion their feet to lotion their hands. I can tell you that that was a war in my heart. That was truly humbling to go and do this activity. But I think I did an okay job. There was one person, I was rubbing the lotion into his feet, rubbing the lotion into his hands and you could tell he was enjoying it immensely. This this lotion releasing the the tightness and the the dryness of his hands and his feet. He needed more. And so he stood up and he started to unfasten his belt. I said, nope. (laughs) I do not know what needs lotion under your belt, but I'm not doing it. But you know what? Jesus does not stop at lowering himself to washing our feet. He came to wash all of us. He came to cleanse us of our sin. And so he lowered himself even more. The third act that our King Jesus brought, used to bring us into the kingdom is he gave himself over to the lowliness of death. Here we look again at Hebrews 2.9. We are told that by the grace of God he might taste death death for everyone. Advent tells us that God is not just mindful of humans, that he doesn't just visit humans, that he doesn't just model for humans the way they should live, but that he suffers in our place. Jesus came and suffered death in our place. We are told that he tasted death. That means He knew it all. He knew the fullness of death. The other image that perhaps should come to our mind is at Gethsemane where he says, take this cup from me. The the taste of death that he was tasting was the cup of wrath, the cup of judgment, the cup of every fallenness and failing that we have contributed to the mess of mankind was put into that cup and he had to drink the bitterness to the dregs. The wrath and the suffering, and the isolation, and the lostness, and the darkness of death. He tasted it all. He experienced it in himself. And he did this not because his perfection somehow needed a sacrifice. He did this because we needed a sacrifice. We needed someone to taste death for us. Because if nobody would, then it's ours to drink the cup. But we are told that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He took the punishment in our place. He drank to the dregs our sentence of death. And so we are told that he is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. The psalm that tells us that There was a crown and there was glory. We are seeing it has been restored in Jesus because he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. More than Adam who grasped the fruit and disobeyed, we are told that Jesus, the son of Adam, came and was obedient to the point of death. He reflected the image of God by his dying breath. What were the last words spoken of him by a Roman centurion no less. Certainly, this man was righteous, the son of God. Jesus restored the crown and glory so that Paul can finish his hymn in in Philippians with these words. Found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The glory has been restored. The crown has been restored. And so when we think of this doxology, for thine is the kingdom, Hebrews says, how do you know it's true? It's true. How do you know that it will be on earth as it is in heaven? Because the author of Hebrews says, we see him, namely Jesus. It is because of the incarnation that we can know that it will be on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus took on flesh and is still in his resurrection, the God man. And so we are told this interesting insight from the theologian John Duncan, a compelling, a a fascinating thought. He says "The the dust of the earth is on the throne of the majesty on high. That is what Jesus has done by his incarnation and his defeating of death. The dust of the earth is on the throne of the majesty on high. But more, in Christ, we are crowned too. Jesus suffered next to another sinner on the cross who finally repented before his death. And Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. What amazing words. Jesus on the cross says, your faith in me who dies for you will take you with me where I go. You, in faith with me, will go to where I go, the paradise of God. You will be royal in the garden again by faith alone. In Christ, our royal heart beats again. It will be indeed. So Christ the King bears the lowliness of mind, the lowliness of uh, of position, and the lowliness of death so that what had been lost by our pride and our pretense and sin could be fully restored. Because Jesus went to the depths of lowliness, we are brought with him into the heights of heavenliness. The good news of Advent is that the Lord of the universe lowered himself to be a baby in a manger, and lowered himself even further to be hung upon a cross so that we who are mere dust might be crowned with glory and honor with him in the ages to come. So as we conclude, Jesus' lowliness teaches us three important things from Advent. Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The first thing that we see then is that we can never be so low or so lost that Jesus is unable to save us. The sinner on the cross was with him. The sinner on the cross left and went straight into paradise because he was with Jesus. Second, as Jesus' disciples, we need to possess meekness, lowliness. We need to have the same mind as he does that we might look after the needs of each other even before we look after our own. And third, it is only through humbling ourselves before Jesus that we will be part of the heavenly kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We must accept the humbling verdict of the cross. We are sinners and rebels deserving judgment. Those who forsake the verdict of the cross are laboring only for the wages of death. Advent calls us to forsake our pride and our pretense and to repent of seeking our self-worth and laboring up the ladders of this world and bearing the crushing load of the world's favor and esteem, which is so fickle. The gospel offers us rest to the weary and life to those who humble themselves by putting their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Thus this sermon ends with these words from Jesus, which are for all of you, whether today you feel high or low or lost. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is no way that we could ever climb to heaven and yet, even though you are so full of glory and magnificence and you need nothing from us, we come to the reality that you sent your son to be brought to this earth to be Emmanuel, God with us, and to die on a cross that by his lowliness of mind, his lowliness of position, and his lowliness of death might raise us up to be eternal citizens of your heavenly kingdom. Father, who can appreciate such glorious things? But it is because we know it will be in Jesus that we pray the prayer that he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.